Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And that's following Lewis and Clark along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And our own Alex Cortez brings us our 27th feature on what happened on these days in history over 200 years ago. When they first saw a grizzly bear on the 20th of October, 1804, near today's Bismarck, North Dakota. We're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. And one of their men, Pierre Cruzat, was out, and he was surprised by a grizzly bear. He shot it. He wounded him. And in terror, threw down his gun. Being alarmed at the formidable appearance of the bear. And ran away. Shortly after returned and found that the bear had taken the opposite route. And so that was their first encounter. Grizzly bears at one point uh, existed all over the Great Plains, not in great numbers, uh, but as far east as Minnesota and Iowa. But they didn't really start to see grizzly bears until the second year of the expedition when they were moving beyond the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Missouri. Lewis was curious, both as a scientist and because of all the wild tales that they had heard about the ferocity of grizzly bears. And so he was eager to meet what he called these gentlemen. And they had a couple of early encounters, and they were not particularly harrowing. After my firing on him, pursued me 70 or 80 yards. But fortunately had been so badly wounded that he was unable to pursue so closely as to prevent my charging my gun, we again repeated our fire and killed him. They realized that these animals had a tremendous vitality. It is astonishing to see the wounds they will bear before they can be put to death. And were difficult to kill. But Lewis had said, well, kind of in his usual, high-handed way. So, well, the Indians you know, may fear this creature equipped as they are with bows and arrows and indifferent fusees, meaning bad British-style muskets. He said, but in the hands of a good rifleman with our sort of equipment, they, we are by no means intimidated by this creature. He said, sometimes the Indians even send out parties two, three, four, and six, uh, and, and often come back with somebody seriously or, or mortally injured from a bear encounter. But we, with our with our advanced technology and our capacity as riflemen, uh, do not fear this creature, and, and said some of the men are sort of looking forward to it. And then they had a couple of, of really serious encounters where the bear would live for 20 or 30 minutes after being shot with half a dozen or more uh, bullets. Five balls through his lungs and five others in various parts. He swam more than half the distance across the river to a sandwich and it was at least 20 minutes before he died. He did not attempt to attack, but fled, and made the most tremendous roaring from the moment he was shot. And men were chased by bears into the river. They struck him several times again, but the guns served only to direct the bear to them. He pursued two of them so close, they were obliged to throw aside their guns and throw themselves into the river. So enraged was this animal that he plunged into the river only a few feet behind the second man. 
One of those who still remained on shore shot him through the head and finally killed him. On one occasion, a bear, uh, after being wounded very heavily and its shoulder broken, swam out half a mile to a sandbar in the middle of the Missouri River and, and, and dug a kind of a pit in agony. Had prepared himself a bed in the earth and was perfectly alive when we found him. And then died in it. And so all through Montana, they had grizzly bear encounters. And after a couple of them, Lewis says, well, I find that the curiosity of the men is pretty well satisfied as to the grizzly bear. I will admit I do not like the gentleman. I had rather fight two Indians than one bear. And Lewis was one of the first to provide a, a scientific uh, description of the size of its head and the size of its heart and stomach. And he was just shocked by um, not only the, the tenacity of the creature and, and the stamina, but the size of its organs, all of them. The testicles are suspended in separate pouches from two to four inches asunder. And does detailed descriptions uh, in measurement of them. We had no means of weighing this monster. Captain Clark thought it would weigh 500 pounds. For my own part, I think the estimate too small by 100 pounds. And then there's one more piece of this that's just so interesting. Lewis is a very unusual man, and he had an unusual sense of humor, which, which comes out again and again in the course of the journals, and it's even hard to pin down. I've done a lot of work on theories of laughter and humor, and it's not easy to, to figure out exactly what's going on with him, but at one point he says, I find the men are, 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 are soon going to be in for considerable amusement because it's, it's mating time for the grizzly bears and as they're copulating. A word that I've never heard before. Good old Meriwether Lewis. Thank you, sir. The, the noise of the males and, and, the, and the fights and so on will, will provide us considerable amusement. And so amusement meant something a little bit different in the 18th and early 19th century than it does today. But even so, it, it kind of, there's a weird angle sometimes to Meriwether Lewis's sense of humor and you see a little piece of it. You also saw it in that other passage that I quoted where he says, I find that the curiosity of the man with respect to the grizzly bear is pretty well satisfied. The formality of that is meant to be amusing. Clark would have just said, the men hate the bears, or the men fear the bears, or the men don't want to see the bears, but, but Lewis uses this somewhat formal, almost oratorical language sometimes as a way of expressing his own unusual brand of humor. And great job as always, Alex, and thanks as always to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at clayjenkinson.com. He's the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On, and he's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And you bet he deserves it. This is Lee Habib, the most epic road trip ever, the story of Lewis and Clark, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes from a former veteran of the National Hockey League, Sean Pronger. Sean's nine-year voyage and the stories behind it are chronicled in his well-received memoir entitled Journeyman, the many triumphs and even more numerous defeats of a guy who's seen just about everything in the game of hockey. An excerpt from Sean's book was posted by the sports website Deadspin, and it quickly went viral. It's titled, I Was Wayne Gretzky's Hungover Linemate, An NHL Journeyman Picks the Wrong Night to Drink. Let's take a listen to Sean's story. To the side of the net, Taylor to Gretzky, he scores! Wayne Gretzky has tied it and broken 40 house records. From the time of Gretzky trailing, Gretzky looking, Gary Curry, McSorley to Gretzky, scores! He did it! He did it! The greatest goal scorer in National Hockey League history is Wayne Gretzky. To say I was a Wayne Gretzky fan as a child would be like saying that my brother Chris has a small gap in his teeth. The Oilers were my team, and Wayne was my idol. It's a great game. I didn't do it to make the paper or get on TV. Uh, that wasn't really even sort of the mindset. You just played for fun. When Chris and I played hockey in the basement, I was always Gretzky, and he was always Mike Bossy. Mike Bossy put it in the net in that wild scramble. It's 2 nothing, and the penalty had just expired. Well, a goaltender can only do so much for you. Two of the most creative offensive forwards of all time. These guys were our idols. My brother Chris turned into a Norris Trophy winning defenseman in the NHL. Chris Pronger, imposing, feared, and dominant. He won the MVP of the NHL. Not too many D have done that. You know, Bobby Orr. He didn't care about anything except for winning. And that's who you want on your team. And I, well, that's what this story is about. We grew up in Dryden, a small mill town in northwestern Ontario, 400 kilometers east of Winnipeg. At that time, the Jets were still in Winnipeg, and they were in the classic Smythe division. That meant the Edmonton Oilers came to town often to torture the Jets and their fans. One year, we made the journey to the peg, and by chance, or perhaps by stalking, the prongers were staying in the same hotel as the Oilers. I can still remember sitting in the lobby with Chris, Watching the Oilers walk through on their way to breakfast, Kevin Lowe walked by and Chris casually said, Hey, Kev, as if they were old buddies. Who knew years later they would be buddies? I didn't see Gretzky go through the lobby, so I went over to the restaurant to have a look. And wouldn't you know it, my idol was in fact there. I can still remember Wayne was eating Eggs Benny that day. As I was spying on him, an old man came up to me and said, Hey, kid. Can you go get Wayne's autograph for my son? Now understand, I didn't want to ask because the great one was eating. On the other hand, of course I asked. If I'd had any brains in my head, I would have gotten one for myself as well. No one ever said I was a genius. Fast forward about 20 years, and wouldn't you know it? I got traded to a New York Rangers team that included none other than the great one. I felt like I was a fantasy camper. Start spreading the news. Looking back, I see that may be one of the reasons my career never took off the way I thought it would. I never felt like I belonged, 
because I was always looking through young Sean's eyes at my great teammates. New York, New York. From November 1998 to February 1999, I was a ranger and a teammate of Wayne Gretzky. Any chance I got to hang out with him, I did. Although most of the time he had no idea we were hanging out. As a fringe player, you have to keep a positive attitude. No one wants to see a fifth liner complain about ice time. So one night I decided to go blow off a little steam, see what the Big Apple had to offer. The fact that a practice was scheduled for the next day did not weigh into my decision making one bit. My friend Herbie, my wife and I found a nice little tavern for a bite and a few carbonated wheat sodas. To the game! Thank God there is still a sport for middle-sized white boys. One led to another, which of course led to another four, and the next thing we knew, my wife and I were strolling home at 4.30 a.m. I think I got to bed around 5 a.m., which was great, because I had to get up at 7 a.m. to drive to the practice rink. I got a solid two hours sleep before the buzzer woke me from my coma. To be honest, I wasn't too worried because I had been practicing on defense the day before. Not a great sign for a forward. I was literally a practice fill-in. Anyway, as I walked through the dressing room, I got the sense that something wasn't right. Wait a second. That's the wrong colored jersey hanging in my stall. Why is it red? You see, in New York, I was a yellow jersey. The scrub line color. Red, on the other hand, was for Gretzky. Adam Graves and Kevin Stevens. I decided someone must be messing with me. I scanned the room to see who was trying to have some fun. Not a person in the room. I grabbed the red jersey and headed into equipment manager Mike Vogelin's office. Folks, you gave me the wrong jersey. No, I didn't, he barked back. You're wearing red today, my friend. Kevin has the flu. Mouth agape, I suddenly realized. I'm playing on Gretzky's line today. A million thoughts and questions rushed through my head. What have I done? Why did I stay out so late? Why don't they close the bars earlier? Where's my camera? How hard would young Sean punch me in the face right now? And he'd be right to do so. My first chance to play with the great one, and I had a bad case of the brown bottle flu. I jumped in the shower and drenched myself in freezing cold water. Time to wake up and get ready to go. Now I know what you're thinking. Slow down, Chris's brother. It's not like you're playing the Islanders tonight. This is practice after all. I know, but you have to understand that for us fifth liners, practice is the game. And when you're playing with Gretzky, it's the all-star game. As the skate loomed closer, I wondered if I should have a talk with Gretz. Just a little chat between first-liners to let him know what transpired a few hours earlier. Or maybe I should just suck up to him and lie about my state. I opted to come clean. Gretz, I'm hungover. Maybe even a little drunk still. Can you keep the puck away from me today? I could not believe I was saying this even as the words were coming out of my mouth. Was I really telling the greatest player in the history of the game, not to mention the finest passer ever, to keep the puck away from me? I was, and the great one was great about it. No problem, Pronks. I've been there myself. Wait, 
Did he just call me Prongs? He knows my name? Somehow that one line from Wayne put my mind at ease. Wayne knew my situation, and he had my back. What a guy. I was calm as I got dressed. As I did, I couldn't help but dream that Wayne and I would have some undeniable chemistry together which would force Coach to do the right thing and keep me on the top unit. We'd become as tight as two coats of paint. Right. I could barely contain my grin as we began to wheel around the ice before the drill started. There was a strut in my step and not the Guinness legs I'd expected to be carting around. I had completely shut out the fact that the coaches likely didn't want to mess up the other lines by moving someone up to play on the red line. But as the drills began, every single pass Gretz made was to yours truly. And I'm not talking about those beautiful saucer passes you see in his video, Hockey My Way. I'm talking about wobbly hand grenades that would blow up as soon as they hit my stick. And by the way, I was playing the off wing. That's right. I had to try to catch those bouncing Bettys on my backhand. Thinking the whole episode was my fault, I formulated an apology as I headed back to the line. Sorry, Wayne, was all I could come up with. He said, Prongs, don't worry about it. I'll try to give you better passes from now on. And he delivered the line with a wink. Turns out Wayne thought it would be fun to mess with me from the get-go. How awesome is that? The greatest player ever to lace them up went out of his way to thoroughly embarrass a hungover grinder. And you know what? That made me feel more included than if he had played it straight. And a great story about leadership. And by the way, the character of Wayne Gretzky, and we love getting surprised. A lot of guys would have gotten in the grill of a grinder. And he didn't. He had fun with them. And picked him up, cheered him up, and on to the next thing. And we love to talk about what makes people great. And my goodness, an insight into the greatest of all time. One of the greatest athletes of the 20th century, Wayne Gretzky. This is Our American Stories. Yeah, he's a Canadian, but he lives in America now, Wayne. And what a great American story. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Joan Rivers was born in 1933. All of our This Days in History are brought to us from the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to learn everything you need to know about our country, about Western civilization, arts, literature, all the beautiful things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for all of their great free online courses. Today, we celebrate the life of the one, the only, Joan Rivers. An unparalleled legend in the entertainment industry, Joan was more than just a comedian. She was a force of nature, an internationally recognized celebrity, an Emmy Award-winning talk show host, a Grammy Award-winning performer, a Tony Award-nominated actress, best-selling author, Playwright, screenwriter, film director, columnist, 
lecturer, radio host, jewelry designer, entrepreneur, and the renowned creator of the modern-day red carpet. Like so many of the great comedians, her life was full of tragedy. We'll get into some of that in just a minute, but first, let's remember Joan for what she was best at, making us laugh. Here she is on The Carol Burnett Show in 1970. Dumb doesn't matter when you're beautiful, which is why I am educated. (laughs) What good does education do you? You're a woman. Does it do you any good? Now that you're married, what good? I'm a philosophy major. What good does philosophy do me now? I can go to the butcher, prove the meat doesn't exist. What good? What good? good? Calculus. Calculus. I was educated. I can figure out the length of a room. You don't need calculus when you figure out the length of a room once you're married. You know how you figure it out? It's always seven inches longer than your vacuum cleaner cord. That's how you figure out the length of the room. <laughs> Physics. Remember that lot? An object in motion tends to remain in motion. Remember that? An object in motion tends to remain in motion. A lie! Once you're married, an object in motion gets back in a bed when the object goes to the office. <laughs> That's where I spend my day. I'm educated. Why should I kill myself? Why should I cook? Do you ever stop and say to yourself, why me? Some days I'm lying in bed. I say, why me, Lord? The Lord wanted me to cook, he would have given me aluminum hands. Why me? (laughs) These hands were meant to hold charge cards. Look at that. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Why should I... Why should I clean? Housework is futile. You make the bed, you do the dishes. Six months later, you have to start all over again. (laughs) It's true. My house is clean enough, believe me. Once a month, I get out of bed. I dust. (laughs) Guests are coming. I put out a drop cloth. I say I'm painting. That's it. (laughs) And you have kids because the kids can clean if you're smart. If they can crawl, they can dust. It's all your attitude. (laughs) You tie the diaper to the legs and you throw the cookie across the room. Go get it, stupid. And that was probably the cleanest example of her brand of stand-up comedy that we can share with you on Our American Stories because this is, after all, a family show. Joan could curse, she could swear, she could tell some of the dirtiest jokes and off-color jokes that any male comedian could tell. But that's for another show. We're going to hear a much more personal side of Joan Rivers. What better place to start than her childhood? Apparently... I was a really, really, really pretty infant to about three where people would stop my mother on the street and say she should model and, you know, like really this glorious little thing. And then instead of getting that way, I started to go that way and became not this little golden-haired angel. I became a brown-haired, chubby child. Everything was all right. I mean, my parents had a good marriage. They argued about money. They argued about things parents, you know, but it wasn't a fight going on all the time at home. My place in the family was the funny one. I was always funny. Always witty, not funny. Ha ha. Not crossing your nose and putting the ice cream on your head. I was funny that I might make a remark about the ice cream. Got me the attention and the love, and everybody say, well, Barbara, my sister, is a smart one, but Joan is so clever. The daughter of Russian immigrants, Joan was raised in an upper-class lifestyle. My dad was a 
general practitioner. He had a huge practice, but people would pay him in chickens. You know, people would pay him in, uh, to this day, I could go into any ethnic household and I've eaten that food because somewhere along the line, one of those ladies made a strudel for my father. You know, so, so the money was always a big thing and we were always in the very good schools. I mean, my mother just lived a life a fantasy. <laughs> she graduated from Barnard College in New York in 1954 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature and Anthropology. Before entering show business, Rivers worked at various jobs, such as a tour guide at Rockefeller Center, a writer at an advertising agency, and a fashion consultant at Bond Clothing Stores. During the late 50s, Rivers appeared in a short-run play, Driftwood, co-starring a then-unknown Barbara Streisand. The play ran for six weeks. Rivers performed in numerous comedy clubs in the village in New York before making her first appearance as a guest on The Tonight Show, hosted at the time by Jack Parr. Here's Joan talking about that first TV appearance. First television appearance, I was brought up by an agent to The Jack Parr Show. And uh, I thought it went very well because I was then in office temporary. So I was telling him I used to steal stamps and sell them for half price, which is all true. And I told him these stories, and I said, I'm from Larchmont, my dad's a doctor, and uh, what was my joke? Oh, he spent two years in uh, medical school, two years in Tijuana, you know, his first words are, does that look right to you, nurse? And she always says, it doesn't matter, doctor. And uh, the next day, a man named Bob Shanks brought me up. The next day, uh, at the meeting, they said, gee, that girl was funny to Parr, and Parr said, she was a liar. A doctor's daughter doesn't steal stamps. And he took a pencil and put it through my name. And I was on earth, I floating. I thought I had done so well. She's a liar. A doctor's daughter doesn't steal stamps. That was it. Pencil through my name. Pencil through her name. By 1965, Rivers had a stint on Candid Camera as a gag writer. She made her first appearance on The Tonight Show with the new host, Johnny Carson, on February 17, 1965. Joan's final appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny was on April 25, 1986, to promote her new book. Would you welcome Miss Joan Rivers? The author spot. The book spot. The author spot. How are you? This is the clothes I wore the first time wearing... 1965 hair. Is this the same dress that you wore? Was it 65? 90, February 17th, 1965. 21 years. 21 years. And you had the strand the of pearls. pearls. The same hairdo. Isn't that nice? How are you feeling? Great. Yeah, we've gotten old. It's, it's very hard for me to believe sometimes oh. on the time frame to think that it was 21 years ago when you first came out and sat down. Do you, you think you're any older? I don't feel any old. I feel great. Yeah, you know, when I feel old, I went to buy sexy underwear, and they automatically gift-wrapped it. Oh. And you go, oh. <laughs> Less than one month later, Joan was banned from The Tonight Show. The soon-to-launch Fox Television Network announced that it was giving her a late-night talk show, The Late Show, starring Joan Rivers, making Rivers the first woman to have her own late-night talk show on a major network, making her a Carson competitor. Here's Joan. I left the show, I was hosting and um, getting better numbers than he was, and my contract was at the end, and they came to me and offered me my own show, and the first one I called was Carson to say, Johnny, 
I'm going to do my own show. And he hung up on me. I called him back, and he hung up again. And then told the press I never called him, never told him. And the press picked up, of course, the whole thing. And uh, I had a very bad reputation for about seven years. And people would say to me, you're such a bitch. And you can hear the sting. And this one really stung Joan bad. And people know about Carson. He was a tough man, and he was toughest on Joan. It should have been a congratulations to Joan's, frankly. Uh, Carson had felt she'd betrayed him. But, of course, she was just moving on. When we come back... More on the life of Joan Rivers after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our celebration of the life of Joan Rivers, and we had left off with her leaving The Tonight Show, Johnny being tough on her, the world being tough on her. How dare a woman leave a big hit show run by a man? By the way, same theme with Dolly Parton when she left Porter Wagoner's show. How could a woman do that? Betrayal. By the way, men did this every day. So this was what it was like, and Joan was a real trailblazer, and she paid a price for doing that, a personal one. The Late Show with Joan Rivers premiered on October 9, 1986 with David Lee Roth, Pee Wee Herman, Elton John, and Cher as guests. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Joan Rivers! I have, I have a whole, you bought my book, thank you. I, I have a whole monologue, which you won't do tonight. I am just... It's been five months, and so much has been said, and so much has been written, and I am just so, so happy to be here, and I thank you all so much. What a moment for Joan. What a moment. By the way, what a lineup. David Lee Roth, Pee Wee Herman, Elton John, and Cher. Could you imagine being the wardrobe person on that one? And the ego manager? Joan Rivers had everything she ever wanted. Fame and fortune, the job of her dreams, a loyal husband, a loving child, a lavish estate and a future that beckoned with possibility. After years of struggle, she had not only succeeded as a comedian, but made history as TV's first and only female late-night talk show host. Less than a year later, she lost everything. In May of 1987, the first lady of comedy was fired from her job and publicly humiliated. Her husband, Edgar, unable to bear his own failure as a manager and a producer, killed himself. Uh, that was really with Edgar, my husband. Um, he was in such pain. Everything was crashing down around us. Uh, we had a big conflict. with. We were on Fox, and he had a tremendous conflict with the Fox people. He had had an open-heart surgery, and they had him on all kinds of medications. And he went into this terrible depression, major, major depression. And he really couldn't function as a producer. He just was couldn't make decisions, made the wrong decisions, um, worried about the wrong things, you know, all, everything was just wrong. And then uh, I just, just tried to do it all. Some really stupid woman said to me about six years ago, why didn't you just leave him and you want to go? Yeah, I'm going to leave my husband 21 years because he's going through bad times. Um, but it was terrible. And uh, I wish I could say I was a wonderful 
good wife. I, I was furious at him that we were both hurting. We were both very upset, but I certainly knew why we were off the air. You know, I knew it was him. I, I guess somewhere I felt he should have just, he should have stepped aside and not let, let me make this grand gesture that destroyed my career. And here, Joan shares the painful details of how her husband committed suicide. He made uh, several tapes, to, one to me, one to my daughter, and one to uh, his best friend. He left three tapes of what he's going to do and why and goodbye and all that. And then just took the pills and killed himself. And my daughter got the call. That was some idiot called and said, is your mother home? And she said, no. And they said, well, please tell her. <laughs> her husband committed suicide in Philadelphia. So she was 15 years old. That's, that's something for a 15-year-old to get. That she had to go and tell me. I don't know if she's ever gotten over it. Because she had spoken to him the night before, and he had said, she said, when are you coming home, Dad? He said, I'll be home tomorrow, Melissa. And then he hung up and made the tapes and killed himself. And my daughter now uh, is in her early 30s, and I don't know how she trusts anybody. How, how can you trust any man for the rest of your life when your father said, I'll be home tomorrow, and then killed himself? It's unimaginable, actually. In her darkest hour... Joan had one friend who quite possibly saved her life as she sat alone herself contemplating suicide. I don't know if I really would have, but I really got the gun out, the whole thing. And my dog, my little dog came and uh, sat in my lap, literally. And I said, somebody loves me. Got to take care of you. And that was... That was a big change, big turning point in my life. But my little, this little stupid dog, this little Yorkie who I adored, literally came and sat on my lap. And I thought, well, no one's going to take you, Spike. You're too mean. So I have to hang around for you. And literally, you saved my life. Joan was bitter about her husband's suicide to the end. And who could blame her? But she didn't let it define who she was. Left me in the ruins of the temple. You know, it's easy for Samson to push down the walls. But now we're in the, now what are we going to do? I have no show. I have, he had made bad investments. He wasn't a good businessman either. Everything was stopped. Stopped. And here I am. And I have a daughter that's in great trouble. And you're not here to help me? I'm furious. I walk past his picture to this day and I go, or friends will come up to me and say, well, when you're in heaven, you'll re-meet Edgar. And I go, oh, no, I won't. (laughs) Not looking to see him again. But I don't hang around and say, leave me alone. I'm I'm angry at my husband. I mean, I say, okay, let's, let's write that new play. Let's get out and do that television show. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's move it. Isn't this fabulous? Yeah, I still hate my husband, but isn't this fat? I won't let that be 
the primary blanket covering my life. And boy, didn't she. She moved on, rebuilt a career, and it took her in places no one could have ever expected. And an icon, an icon. And you never really heard her in public talk about what you just heard. I mean, we had to do the digging, and we do that here. And we love bringing you the story behind the story. By the way, when you listen to Carson's story, it's really sad. And when you listen to most of these comedians' stories, oh my goodness, Robin Williams, a train wreck. And tragic. And here on this show, we don't mock the artists who lose their life prematurely. One thing is clear. It's a hard life. It's a tough life. Or all these lives wouldn't end so tragically. And we look to them to entertain us, to ennoble us. And then, well, we don't pay much attention thereafter. As a philanthropist, Rivers supported causes including HIV-AIDS activism. She served as an honorary director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She also supported guide dogs for the blind, donated to Jewish charities, animal welfare efforts, Habitat for Humanity, and the Boy Scouts of America. On August 28, 2014, Rivers experienced serious complications and stopped breathing while undergoing what was scheduled as a minor cosmetic surgery in Manhattan. Resuscitated an hour later, Rivers was transferred to the hospital and later put on life support. She died on September 4 at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, having never awoken from a medically induced coma. Joan eventually made it back to The Tonight Show after being banned for nearly 30 years when Jimmy Fallon took over as host. The day that she passed, Jimmy Fallon had this to say about her. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but uh, uh, our pal Joan Rivers passed away today. I know. Gosh, what a crazy time this is right now. And she's one of the, the funniest people uh, in the world, ever. And she used to come on the show. We loved her. The crew loved her. Everyone loved Joan Rivers. Uh, she is uh, fearless. Uh, one of the, I mean, she would come out and just say what you were thinking, but you wouldn't say it. <laughs> you would stop, and she, but she wouldn't stop. She would just say it. Uh, and a lot of people thought you know, her humor was mean and stuff like that, but she just did it because she wanted to make everyone laugh. That's the goal. And she could take a joke just as easily as she could dish it out. One of the classic acts. Uh, I love her so much. Class act all the way. Um, she, uh, we, we had her, she hadn't been on The Tonight Show in, I want to say, over 26 years. Yeah. Uh, since Johnny Carson, they, some, some dispute or something. And she hadn't been on, and we had her on Late Night and welcomed her back to the network NBC. But we had her on our very first Tonight Show when I, when I took over. And she hadn't, so I'm lucky to say that I got to work with her and have her on our Tonight Show. And I was just so blessed to do that. But we had this bit where at the beginning of the show I said, to, all my friend, uh, to my friend out there who said I couldn't host The Tonight Show, you owe me a hundred bucks. And then I had a parade of celebrities come out and throw a hundred bucks on the desk, like De Niro, Tina Fey, uh, you know, everyone did it, it was great. And Joan Rivers, we asked Joan to be one of the people, and that was, she came out, and she came over to me, and uh, she started crying and gave me a kiss. It was really emotional and really nice. Um, She's just, I don't, I don't want to show a clip because I don't think it'll do her justice because she's just too funny. So what I would tell people is to rent Joan Rivers a piece of work on Netflix or Apple TV or wherever people watch movies now. Is that how you do it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Joan Rivers, a piece of work. You see this documentary. Have you guys seen this movie? It's, un, it's unbelievable when you see how much her work ethic and everything that went into it. She had a, a file cabinet full of jokes that she would have, like, a file cabinet full of, like, there was one I saw, like, there's a whole stack of cards about Tony Danza. I go, why, why, why would you need that? I don't know why. 
Why would you have that? Uh, anyways, we loved her. Uh, we, uh, we will definitely miss her. Gosh, Joan Rivers, one of the greatest. And Jimmy Fallon, you could hear him holding back tears. And so he closed, celebrating the life of Joan Rivers, born on this day in history in 1933. And as always, are this days in histories brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Joan Rivers' story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show and that's love stories death stories, war stories stories about our history and our nation's history stories about sports, the arts you name it and we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country and mostly almost uniformly with honor and with dignity and today we're joined by a local his book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent Adventures, Close Calls and the toll of a double life, and Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana, and by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans, so we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching the body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact that it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun, French, and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking, game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields. But his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again and then hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. 
How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups. I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and uh, that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of a rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through. And I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt. And some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx. And he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps. And you know when Fred's saying that, right? that he means it. It's not just a a platitude. Let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with B.C., ambushes and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleep in two hours, then on watch. And then all day you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food, you're losing weight, you're tired all the time, you're worn down, and when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment, you're loaded down with it, you're exhausted, you're dirty all the time. It takes stamina, it takes endurance, and it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit, you've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden, a terrifying moment the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head. 
And it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, oh, my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close. Or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settle down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and... Uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apart- at our apartment. And he came over. We had coffee. And uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit. He asked me if I would volunteer to go undercover. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. So I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters. That started my 10-year undercover career, you know, six years with the Baton Rouge PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first 
six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence. And my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups. And therefore, my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so um, usually... Uh, I'd get home maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out. And that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yep. And I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the, in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here you get none of these, what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf in a, in a sense. You've got a, maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Uh, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we – you know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. And I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. Know, what are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. And then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. I, when I saw them and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden... I whispered, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys, and she just kept, I mean. 
She knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct, instinct. and fear, yeah. which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid or, is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up right. and just move. Right, like when the, uh, when the uh, drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back, and he pointed to a we were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it, that home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie, be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to you know defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Euro. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read, and more with Charlie and his stories here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and The Toll of a Double Life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin buy bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent, and the drug dealer had told the heroin dealer, had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road, drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road. And when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry, don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time. You know, So it's like being on the moon, it's remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dedman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road, so Sarah and Jerry were really on their own, and it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving, and as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out, and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll. The heroin dealer produced the four ounces, and when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger, bam, bam. And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Deadman, Jerry Deadman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal, the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot 38 toward her partner. She ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Dedman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow, pow. Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment. And when they got down there, 
Jerry rolled over flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat, and about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room, and the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here, and they put him on a table, and the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital, and the nurse left, and Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding, and as she was there, after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes, it was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs. And she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on a tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him, said, Mr., Mr., would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner, and if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state, and this happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this, go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. He was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building. She double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep, and at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was, and the agent said, Sarah, I've been been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were had blood all over them. 
a blouse with blood all over it and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday papers, award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home, and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what they, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City, and they're well-known. And that's Mississippi. Right, Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well-known. But they happen to be talking with people in town, and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money, and all of a sudden— They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home and the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of a scam target and then call others to come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to, to do things, uh, and 
that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies and they're operating over multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in Northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough, who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, but it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look, here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man, Mike, down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad, he'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Don't tell them something that bad when I heard about it. Oh, my God. But anyway, they so they spread the story. <laughs> They spread the story that I was uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that help dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't, oh, don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, we've already gotten rid of it, but there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind? How much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen, and so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning, I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box, and then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me, and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries, and I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they'd stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they were wanting to unload. And they took me out in the country and showed them to me. And we took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals. And one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such and such, it was a relative of his, lives on that 
that hill up there in that house, uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it, but even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the, that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got, got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, Corvettes to um, tractor-trailer trucks. In fact, tractor-trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand-new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago 12 hours before and driven down. Nice deal for twenty two hundred dollars. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't yeah. buy a used car for this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. For Whatever that. you do, yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable because Charlie, you ran every every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly. You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships, but it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time, but they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in the prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDEF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, prosecutor uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going till we've got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases, and the state agent said, um, 
well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we worked. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to can, can to can. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one, from undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up, and he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places, and he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Story.